All right, hey AJ, welcome back to the show. Hey Elias. Are you disappointed that uh, Apple's killed their AI car? You know, I was I was actually kind of looking forward to it. Yeah. But there's all those jokes about like, would you have to flip it upside down to charge it? You know, like the uh, <laughs> the Apple magic mouse and things like that. But, you know, it, it it is what it is, right? No skin off my back. I wouldn't be able to afford one anyway. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I was looking forward to Elon having a little bit more competition for the tech bro hype car, but no longer. Yeah, uh, you know, it's disappointing. You pour one out for Apple. <laughs> yeah, pour one out for uh, the world's uh, most valuable technology company. All right, today we're going to be talking a bit about um, ransomware takedowns and some of the ransomware groups that have maybe managed to resuscitate themselves. We'll get into the details of that. And also on the show today, Rob Lee of Dragos is on the show to, to talk about Chinese attacks on American critical infrastructure. That's coming up today on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. My name is Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode. AJ Vicen, CyberScoop reporter. Welcome back to the show. How's it going? Good. So we, we've had an eventful week, you and I, trying to cover the ransomware group Lockbit, uh, which, as we talked about last week, got taken down by the FBI and maybe made a return over the weekend. Is Lockbit back? It's a great question. Uh, they want to make it look like they're back. Uh, they got so thoroughly owned by uh, the National Crime Agency, the FBI, and a host of other international law enforcement agencies that it's really like they're, they're trying so hard to say that this wasn't that big of a deal. It's not that bad. Uh, you know, we, we still have data. We're still active. Nothing to see here. But, you know, most folks paying attention seem to think that this is not going well for them. So what has actually happened with regard to, to Lockbit's return? They, they've launched a new website of some sort, and they're, they're claiming victims. Kind of for folks who are not following the story in minute detail, what has Lockbit actually done post-takedown? Post-takedown. So a little less than a week after this major takedown of Lockbit, which you know, for those folks who are not paying attention, Lockbit was the biggest and most sort of successful and ubiquitous ransomware group going. Uh, they were taken down, uh, thorough owning, like I said, the, the International Law Enforcement Coalition took down dozens of servers, all sorts of other related things, thousands of spam social media accounts, froze a bunch of cryptocurrency wallets, those kinds of things. I mean, really across the board, Everything short of arresting the top dogs of the group. Uh, less than a week later, a, a new site pops up. Same logo, same branding, same everything. Um, and there are victims listed there. Uh, they tried to make it look like these are new victims. And that this, you know, in order to say essentially that this is, you know, business as usual, right? We're, we're still rolling along. We're still extorting people. We're still getting your money. You can't do anything to us. They also had one of those, you know, victims on there was listed as the FBI. And then <laughs> when you clicked through, 
it was a long and rambling message posted in both English and Russian talking about how, you know, the, they got to us because of a, a vulnerability in the PHP server software. And really the only reason that happened is because I've been so rich and on my yacht with women that I, <laughs> I just forgot to update, but everything's fine. You can't do anything to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really what, what you're worried about is the documents that I have from Fulton County, Georgia, that have to do with President Donald Trump and his case down there. So that's why you pulled the trigger. You know, setting aside the fact that these operations take months, more than a year to plan, um, you know, the FBI was perhaps not the lead agency here. This was a, a UK driven thing, you know, all sorts of factors that, you know, get in the way of that narrative. Um, it, it really kind of shows that they're really trying to project that everything is fine. Um, but as we've sort of noted, and experts have noted too, uh, the victims that they've posted on this new site are not perhaps new. Um, these are uh, old victims. Uh, you know, so a researcher pointed out that you know the new victims. The, the data was actually exfiltrated by BlockBit affiliates weeks ago ahead of the lockdown. So really, they're just trying to. Uh, it, it's it's a projection game. It's a it's an image game. And that kind of gets at the bigger point, right? We've written about this and others have as well, that part of the law enforcement strategy writ large is to make these groups look like they can't be trusted. They're not functional. Uh, even if they do pop back up, uh, you, but you probably can't trust them to say that they're secure because who knows uh, whether the FBI or the NCA or any other agency right, is lurking in the back end, uh, monitoring everything knocking on affiliates doors, those kinds of things. So it's really kind of this like public playing out of the drama, but you know, it's, it's just how it goes when you can't get to people physically because they're in Russia, uh, likely. And so you have to do everything short of that, but it's, it's an ongoing drama, right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Fulton County, um, which is, one of the alleged victims of Lockbit and you know what the group is alleging now, right, is that they have documents related to the criminal trial targeting former President Donald Trump that's being uh, carried out there in, in Fulton County uh, by the, the district attorney. These are charges related to his efforts to overturn the election in 2020. And Lockbit claims to have obtained some files related to the trial and is threatening to release documents uh, linked to that trial, which is, I think it's just, if it's true, it, it's totally remarkable, but obviously we, we don't know if it's actually the case that he has the, these documents or, or whether it's bluster. Like, how do you read that threat? Like, How seriously do we think we, we should take... Lockbit's claims about Fulton County? Well, that's an interesting question because there has been some reporting, you know, Brian Krebs did some examine that angle and the sample that has been released related to Fulton County does seem to indicate that there is access to uh, sensitive files from other cases. Certainly Um, I haven't heard of any of the actual Trump case files being posted as sample evidence. And if, you know, if I was going to make a bold 
uh, sort of claim like this, I probably would at least post some evidence of it. Um, but, you know, all of this is to say that these are these groups, these actors, these hackers are not sort of the most reliable narrators here. And taking them at their word is kind of a fool's errand. Mm. Well, that said, though, it, it is a really worrying prospect, right? I mean, what if these groups started really targeting these sensitive cases or, or court systems, and they know how sensitive that situation is in the United States and how sort of polarized everything is, any little bit of, um, you know, subterfuge or, or shenanigans in that case is only going to add to the already wild situation that we have domestically, politically here. So it's a really troubling situation, to be honest, and we'll see how it plays out. I mean, the deadline is what, tomorrow? Um, yeah, tomorrow morning. So, you know, Fulton County has acknowledged that they're dealing with something, but they're also grappling with, you know, one of the other larger questions that applies to all of these ransomware situations, which is, should we pay ransoms? And even if you do pay a ransom, can you guarantee that the group is not just going to come back and extort you again, or that they held onto your data and they're going to sell it anyway? Um, maybe they don't post it publicly, but maybe they sell it to someone else. Uh, maybe they, and we've seen evidence of this, maybe they, you pay them once, they go away for a little bit, they come back and say, well, we've decided we want you to pay us again. Um, so there's, it's a very complicated question as to whether, you know, ransom should be banned at all, uh, how people should handle them. You know, there are sanctions impl implications if you're sending money to designated terrorists, transnational terrorist organizations. There's a lot of complicating factors here. Um, so, you know, lots of balls in the air on that one, and we'll see what happens. All right. Well, we will have you back on the show, I'm sure, to talk about Lockbit again. AJ, thank you so much, as always, for your great reporting on this. Thanks so much. Up next, I'm joined by Robert M. Lee, the CEO of the industrial cybersecurity company Dragos. Here in Washington, national security officials have issued a series of increasingly dire warnings about Chinese targeting of U.S. critical infrastructure. Few firms besides Dragos have more insight on what these attacks entail, and Rob joins the show to discuss what he's seeing in terms of Chinese operations targeting U.S. infrastructure. That's up next on Safe Mode. In recent months, U.S. security officials have issued a series of dire warnings about the hacking threat to American critical infrastructure. According to a chorus of intelligence officials, Chinese hacking groups have infiltrated U.S. critical infrastructure entities like ports and power grids, prepositioning themselves in the event of a conflict. But Chinese hackers are just one part of the threat landscape facing critical infrastructure entities. And joining me today is Robert M. Lee, the CEO of Dragos, a firm that's on the front line of protecting operational technology, including many critical infrastructure entities. Rob Lee, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again, Rob. Uh, so your firm is on the front lines of protecting things like factories and oil refineries, the kind of targets that Chinese hackers might be interested in hitting as part of a conflict between the United States and China. When you listen to folks like Chris Ray, the FBI director, Jenny Easterly of CISA, warn of this threat from Chinese hackers in the event of a conflict, how did their descriptions of what is happening kind of compare to what you're seeing? Yeah, I think it's I think it's fairly accurate. And I think if you go back to years ago and you and I were talking about this, I would regularly be pretty critical of government when they would have these kind of warnings for a couple of reasons. 
one, we would see government agencies rightfully talk about their perceived risk of, hey, maybe they're embedding themselves in critical infrastructure, but they didn't have the data to back it up. And so I would constantly sort of push back and go, look, if you got evidence, bring the evidence. Um, of course, it makes sense that our adversaries are doing this, but you, you can't go out and scare the public and not give the evidence to the asset owners and operators who can go do something about it. You, you got to pick one. Um, and then at the same time, there was a lack of expertise around what the difference between infrastructure technology or IT versus operation technology or OT was. And so like a phishing email to a power company, be like, oh my God, the power grid's gonna go down. It's like, well, it's not one power grid and that's also not how you do it, that, that's enterprise IT. So nowadays, the difference to me is there has been a much larger up-leveling of what is OT, what is OT security, where, where is the critical part of critical infrastructure in government agencies. And so like the Chris's and Jen's and folks of the world do know that and do get that. And so now when they're coming out, it's based on a better understanding in government agencies. And there are cases that the government agencies are working in and have developed relationships with firms like ours and others to get those insights. So long story short, I would say their warnings are more accurate um, than ever before. And what we have been seeing in this case, the Volt Typhoon or what we would track as Volt site um, was a group that was actively in electric utilities and key key sites. And we've seen them in organizations exfiltrating out the right type of operations technology data, GIS information, et cetera, that would be useful in attacks. So I think talking to folks in industry who are dealing with these types of issues, the complaint for years has been that we need more from the government. We need we need the government to, to, to bring information to bear on this. And I, I, frankly, I think we're, a lot of the time we're talking about the, you know, the capabilities of like a highly resourced national security agency, right? To really bring the information to bear on these problems um, and help industry understand them. What do you think of the job that the government is doing right now to, to give, you know, the industry operators, the folks running power plants, for example, like the data they need to, to be aware of what Chinese actors are doing? I think, I think they're doing well on the awareness side. And so like, I just did a congressional testimony um, for the House subcommittee that has oversight over CISA. And so it was a very, very pointed conversation where they wanted to ask me explicitly about CISA. And I'll, I'll sort of just paint government wide, but CISA has sort of declared themselves on the front lines of it. And, and hey, they're the, the, the main um, one to talk to. So I think they, they get more attention just by being in that, that position. Um, and so I'll say what they're doing to drive awareness is spot on. And they're having conversations with electric utilities and others where we're seeing OT get referenced in national strategy documents. Um, we saw a Biden administration advisory what, two years ago on the, on the heels of Pipe Dream where they were saying, hey, OT specifically could be the target of these uh, cyber attacks. Like that, that level of awareness is really useful and really good. I think where there's still room for improvement um, and where you'll find most of the critical feedback ends up being at kind of that operational tactical level, kind of underneath the awareness level strategic, where these groups like JCDC spin up, and I don't think um, expectation management has been very good. And and the groups come in various flavors. Like I know there was a Politico piece that was pretty targeted and pretty sharp about the fact that a lot of cybersecurity companies are kind of pulling back on JCDC because they're showing up expecting government to bring unique insights from their data, their, their uh, collection from their people, but, 
but really all it is is they're running like another ISAC where they're expecting all of us to contribute. And that's been our experience on like the OT or the ICS, JCDC, where it's like, cool, Dragos, can you just dump all of your intelligence to everybody in the group? And I was like, does anybody else have anything to contribute? Is there there anything else for us here? And I was like, yeah, we're not just here to provide you intelligence. Um, But you do see some groups do really, really well in that. Like NSA, which you mentioned, like the NSA's um, uh, collaboration center that uh, Adam Morgaminsky, excuse me, Morgan Agaminsky leads up. Um, Morgan and her team are doing a phenomenal job and we've gotten some really good wins, um, some that aren't even public of being able to work together in that kind of sphere. So I would broadly say government still needs to stick to the why and the what and stay out of the how. And for them to just go, here's a free pen test or a free website scan or this or that, like it's more distraction than anything because one, it's not free, it's taxpayer funded and it's absurdly more expensive when you go through government channels. And they're not doing anything that's not already available in the private sector. But when they kind of standardize the message on why are we doing this and try to speak with one voice out to industry versus 15 different government agencies telling you 15 different things to do um, as a CEO, like that, that is where they can be much more impactful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about that kind of the tactical front line. And I, I think one of the reasons why the, the Volt Typhoon warnings kind of raise, naturally raise the questions around what the government's role is in all of this is that these warnings are being described as pre-positioning in the event of a conflict between the United States and and China. And then if that's the case, then presumably it's really the, the government's role to protect critical infrastructure entities oh, that... Would, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in theory, right? They, like They've said that. Like, to, to your credit, they have said in Congress and otherwise, we will protect American infrastructure. And, and what they need to say is, we actually have abdicated that role decades ago. Right. We have no way to do anything to which we're saying, but we have a role to play, which is around awareness and kind of strategic level guidance. Exactly. No, but I mean, that's what I mean. What I when I say that is, you know, I almost I almost say that from like a political theory perspective, where like yeah. it is the you know it is the role of the state, you know, it, with its monopoly on violence to, you know, protect, uh, you know, sources of national power like the ability to generate electricity, right? Um, and sounds good. <laughs> it sounds good, right? I mean, in theory, right? But uh, in reality, it's it's private companies that are running these things. And so, you know, they have no, to. Yeah, absolutely. And where does the expertise lie in the private sector? And this mm-hmm. is what I talk to Congress all the time. They're, they're stunned by this because, look, I, I do like the various government agencies. They're doing a good job. But who pays their bills? Congress. So you ever seen a vendor pitch to a customer? We all roll our eyes at RSA every year at the booths and things, right? That's what Congress is for government agencies. They're getting in front of them going, give us more budget. We need more stuff to do more things. Give us more budget. And they got to they gotta justify it. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing when government agencies brief Congress half the time is them posturing for budget. Just full stop. Yeah. They're not being malicious about it. They're not being inaccurate about it, but they are posturing for budget. And when you when you look at that, like government's good about pitching government. And we just got to be thoughtful about where does the expertise lie? Again, going back to the comment, congressmen constantly come to me and go, oh, we just need to unleash CISA to be able to go do all this. I'm like, dude, I'm all for resourcing CISA more. No, no questions asked. But I was like, but what do you mean by that? Like, what do you, what do you mean unleash them? They're like, well, they have all the expertise in the community about how to protect these critical infrastructure companies and, and these asset owners and operators don't. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, mm. 
asset owners and operators more regularly bring in government, not to learn from government, but to teach the government how their operations run so that they're better partners. So there's a role and responsibility and you got to have both, but let's not pretend the best incident responders are in CISA and not out at Dragos, Mandia, Unit 42, CrowdStrike, et cetera. Like let's, let's, let's stop pretending about where the expertise lies and where does the expertise uh, lie in terms of how to, how to operate a pipeline? more at Colonial Pipeline than it does at TSA. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up TSA, who's, I think, the pipeline <laughs> oversight mission there, right, was, I mean, I think, historically underfunded. And I think there were, yeah. I mean, maybe a dozen people working in that office. Or less, yeah. Or less, yeah. yeah. All right, I, I do, I do want to talk a little bit kind of about the, the tactical components of some of these, these Chinese operations that, that are, we're talking about are really driving this, this conversation. And it seems like, you know, government officials are describing a shift in Chinese operations away from intelligence collection and toward prepositioning in the event of a conflict. And I'm wondering from where you sit, what is the change in behavior on these Chinese hacking entities that, that's driving this this change in assessment that it's now about prepositioning? Yeah. And so I'm seeing the same thing, but I want to acknowledge that there is very much a visibility and collection bias here. And so it may still be true anyways, but let's just acknowledge that up front of all of the efforts historically of the past 30 something years, 40 years have been collect data from the enterprise IT environments and look for threats. And so you saw a lot of enterprise IT threats and enterprise IT like actions such as intellectual property theft. But now that we're getting more insight into the operation technology networks, we are seeing OT specific threats. We're seeing OT specific actions, posturing for more disruptive and intellectual property theft and similar. And so it's fair to say that the types of threats we're seeing these days are more towards that trend of prepositioning, conflict ready, et cetera. And we're seeing adversaries develop capabilities like Pipedream, which was multi-industry, you know, reusable, able to do disruption, if not destruction, depending on the physical profile of the site. Yeah, just a step, for folks who might not be familiar with Pipedream, just explain to us what was Pipedream, what was it targeting? Yeah, so Pipedream, so historically we've had very heterogeneous environments. You know, a substation in D.C. is very different than a substation in California, let alone a carbon cracker at a petrochemical facility in Damam, Riyadh, or Mm. Damam, Saudi Arabia. So, like, they were very heterogeneous sub-industry, very, very heterogeneous cross industry. So if you wanted to do espionage, you could hit a bunch of sites. If you want to do disruption, it was very site specific. If you want to do destruction, it was very, very subsystem kind of site specific. Um, Pipe Dream was a capability uh, that Dragos and an unidentified third party working with government was able to identify and analyze and get out to the community, I think two, two and a half years ago. And it was the first time we've seen a collection of malware. It's, it's, a, it's a framework really that um, can go cross industry because the industries have started going more homogenous, more common operating software, more common platforms, more common network protocols, et cetera. And so it took advantage of that commonality, that homogeneity, and made a framework where you could disrupt a pipeline as, as easily as a water side, as well as easily as a, a, a camera package and sensor package on an unmanned aerial vehicle. Right. And so it's just any type of control systems um, it would be accessible to. And um, this was, in, in my opinion, this was the state actor that was developing it. They, they had not, let me, let me say, they, they did not employ it against their targets yet. 
Um, they, they may have deployed it somewhere in the world and we want to be very careful about how we found it and all that. So we, they may have deployed it somewhere in the world, but it was not employed. So it wasn't at the places that we, we deemed to be their explicit targets. And there were targets in our assessment across the United States and electric and, and natural gas that they were targeting. Mm. Um, but when, when we look at this capability, in my opinion, it was that state actors wartime capability. Like it is a, it's a good example of, we got quote unquote left of boom. We saw something that was being developed for conflict scenarios, and we got lucky in a way to be able to identify it ahead of time and tell people about it. But it's not fixed. It's not like you can just patch your way out of this. It's taking advantage of native functionality in these operational environments. If I can open up a circuit breaker, so can the adversary. Mm. And so it's really something that you got to go past the idea of prevention and get to detection, response, recovery, like we've been talking for years, but a lot of companies um, don't do yet. Um, anyway, so that's pipe dreams. So we're starting to see those type of pipe dreams. Maybe for any like IT security professionals listening that aren't as familiar with OT, I would say what you should think of is what happened with ransomware, where it kind of blew up because of cryptocurrencies and Cobalt Strike. I mean, we can say just OST in general, but really it was Cobalt Strike. <laughs> um, that's that's what I'm concerned with with pipe dream. Right now, it's a state level capability, and only that state and a couple firms have it. That capability or similar ones start leaking out. That's going to be the Cobalt Strike for people that want to go after OT. It's just easy to pick up and use without even having all this knowledge on, on OT. That's where we'll start to see high frequency events. Are you seeing these similar, as I recall, the, one of the interesting things about Pipedream was that it was, it was fairly modular, right? Like you could deploy Very it. Very modular. Yeah, it yeah, had, you could, it, it, had, again, it's a framework. So you can, yeah. you can mix and match and use it. And again, some of the things that goes after, like anything that uses Modbus TCP as an example, network protocol or Codis as a software package, it can interact with. Well, guess what? That's the number one most common software package and network protocol across industry. So it's just the, the developers, you know, you don't want to like give them credit because they're, they're jerks for what they've done, but like <laughs> they developed a very, very good capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it hasn't leaked online yet. It doesn't. Correct. Doesn't yeah, exist. My out there knowledge, it only mm -hmm. exists with that state actor, U.S. government, Dragos and like two other firms. And okay. I'm just hoping, hoping nobody leaks it. And Dragos has not attributed it. No, so Dragos doesn't do attribution in general because I mean, if we probably would need a glass of scotch in two hours to get through this piece of it, but mm. um, my general view is attribution doesn't do you any good for network security, mm -hmm. and and we can have this debate about what about thinking about threat models and whatever. Like you can get there all the same way, just tracking like clusters of groups, like activity groups or Volt Typhoon or whatever. Knowing that it's China versus Russia versus Iran doesn't do the individual company any good. Um, from a state perspective, yes, there's there's a role for attribution. Um, but unless you're arresting people or guiding national strategy or sanctions or similar, from a network security perspective, it does not change how you do your business one ounce. So we don't we don't do it. We don't mm. spend the time on it. Just it's it's inherently political uh, and it's and it's expensive. It's an expensive intelligence requirement to do right. And I also think we're very immature in the community around it. Where like how many companies have come out and said so and so is China, so and so is Russia, so and so is U.S., and then how many of those same companies have come back later and go, "Oop, we were wrong. It's actually someone else," and that doesn't happen really that often. And which leads me to say that um, where we, where the private sector runs circles around government in terms of tactical expertise and security expertise, I think the government runs circles around private sector in terms of attribution, and and we need to be careful thinking about how good private sector attribution is. So you brought up Pipedream in the context of a conversation about kind of, you know, Chinese tactical capabilities. Do you see parallels between Pipedreams and what the Chinese are up to? In terms of what they're stealing, yes. So mm. Pipedream itself would be a capability, right, that like comes on the back end of all that type of information gathering to create something capable of doing disruption or destruction. 
the type of information, um, Volt Typhoon, or, or again, what we see of it, which is Volt Site, um, what we see of it is they're stealing the information that'd be useful to, to doing capability development and, and to be able to do disruption. And this group is resourced enough to be able to create Pytreme-like capabilities if they want to. Mm. One of the things that I find most striking about the, the warnings from U.S. security officials is that these Chinese groups have been lurking in critical infrastructure entities for up to five years. How is that possible? Because people aren't looking. I mean, I mean, yeah. look, just I, I am like the biggest advocate of the community of going like, hey, asset owners and operators don't get enough credit. Like we're doing a lot of good stuff, like blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, let's be real candid. Uh, less than 5% of US infrastructure, I'd say less than 5% global infrastructure for sure, but but probably less than eight to 5% of US infrastructure is being monitored, okay? And that sounds like we're doing a bad job, but let's also be straight about the advice. If you look at DHS guidance, you look at NIST cybersecurity framework, you look at 62443, you look at all the standards and frameworks that have ever been thrown out to these asset owners and operators, and, and we actually did the math and found about, on average, 95% of the guidance is preventative in nature. Here's how you patch, access controls, passwords, antivirus, it's prevent. If you actually look at the, the, the controls in there about detect, respond, visibility, recovery, it's less than 5% split across all of them. So why can't a pipeline or a power company or a manufacturer do anything besides trying to prevent it? Because they've been told to put all the resources there. And there's been a huge prevention bias even in the vendor community. And so if you are putting 95% of your resources into prevention, if prevention fails, you are not detecting the really good state actors. You're not getting visibility into their operations. You're not responding to them, et cetera, et cetera. So now that some companies are doing that, we're seeing wins. So like one of the cases that we talked about in our year interview report that launched, we got deployed. So a, a, an electric company, mid-sized electric company, um, uh, chose us as their vendor, deployed our technology, turned on kind of our managed service where we do like hunting um, type work. And we were like, uh, yeah, this is this is compromised. <laughs> like we, your site's already compromised. And they, mm -hmm. they were kind of figuring it out already at that point. Um, and I think there was some, there, there may have been some third party interactions with them as well. And, and so we did the hunt and go, yeah, you're, you're fully compromised. You're, you're properly compromised. And now luckily, I'll say luckily, because of their really good efforts, they had done a lot of the things that people have been talking about in terms of fundamentals. And so their operations and environments were good. Like they were, they were very, very good. It was a defensible environment and, and they deserve a lot of credit. And it shows that even a mid-sized player can stand up to the state actors when they do the right things. But in that one environment, they hadn't had visibility and detection, whatever, into o NOT before we came along. And when they did, they found that they had been compromised for well over 300 days. And so long story short, you get companies that have done all the things that have been told around segment, firewall, patch, you know, whatever, and they do all this prevention, then they're not looking, they're not hunting, they're not, they're not going to look. We, we, we have the equivalency of Schrodinger's ICS across the country. We're just not looking inside the box to see if the cat's alive. And there's a lot of companies that are already compromised. And when you're not seeing disruption and destruction because adversaries are pre-positioning or learning or stealing, you're not going to notice it uh, until you start looking. Mm. So I do think it's probably probably misleading to just talk about the Chinese threat in the context of critical infrastructure. You know, I've, it's everybody. I mean, don't yeah. pretend that the U.S. isn't doing this abroad. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. But I do want and to talk. One about of the reasons, by the way, we don't do attribution is I want to kick everybody out. Every thirty-five-year-old. I, look, I, I know I can't protect Iranian infrastructure. I know I can't protect Russian infrastructure, and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. 
um, legally, and, and that's all good and wonderful. But you can't tell me a 35-year-old mom doesn't deserve to go home to her five-year-old kid regardless of her nationality. Like, you want to go do military conflict and 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 have do all that? Feel free. Like, I was in the military. I wore a uniform. I didn't mind if somebody in uniform shot at me. Like, that's part of the game. But civilians and civilian infrastructure should be off limits mm. from everybody, full stop. Okay, I have to ask you then, does Dragos ever boot cyber, U.S. Uh, cyber Command out of so uh, critical I, infrastructure? I, I have to answer this one. <laughs> I, I can answer this one very, very well because I made a comment. It might have been to you. I forget who it was. I made a comment, I think, six years ago about that. And I got the FBI like up my tail about it and like, oh, what would you and oh, what would you do this? That, and that? I was like, look, let's be clear. Standing U.S. policies, the U.S. doesn't target critical infrastructure or civilian infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if you're following your own policy, I won't have to. Second of all, we don't do attribution at Drago. So how would I know? And you guys must be so good that I'd <laughs> never know. Um, but look, from a from a real answer, um, we we dispel threats in, in critical infrastructure environments in these OT networks, regardless of who they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we were to find US or otherwise, we would not give anybody a heads up or even spend an ounce of time to do the attribution. If you are not invited into that house, you do not need to be in that house and we would kick anybody out full stop. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure folks listening at Fort Meade will be delighted to hear that answer. Um, I, I actually, I, be, I bet you they would. Like, I, I mean, I worked there. Like I worked yeah. at the NSA. Like you will, you'd be surprised at how many have the view of make it hard on everybody because we're so good we'll rise up yep. but make it harder for everybody and there's a lot of damn good people that do agree that civilians should be off limits mm, okay so from where you said i just i do want to talk about ransomware operations um yeah. just this week we you know we had a big takedown against um lockbit the world's most pervasive ransomware operator i'd say because it's over right like it's they're, they're done oh they might be back we'll see yeah, right yeah. Yeah. yeah um so just how do ransomware operations look like from from where you sit? How's that affecting kind of OT critical infrastructure entities? Yeah, I would say uh, kind of probably three levels. Um, first level is just impacting enterprise IT does impact operations in most organizations. Like you can't bill, you can't you know do order processing and similar. Obviously, it's going to impact you. So they they are impactful even in just the IT networks. But the two that we kind of care about from a Drago's view and have visibility into is when it impacts operations. Like that's all we 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 live in, right? So from our standpoint, there's kind of two ways I mean, it goes about business. The first is accidentally, where you have a enterprise IT environment that is connected up to your operations or OT environment. And and all the companies will say how segmented off and whatever they are, but there's you cannot have everything off. Like it's not like air gap, that, that stuff is mythical outside of the nuclear power industry. And so they're sharing like Active Directory or domain controller kind of services from IT and OT. Ransomware actor pops the IT network, pushes out the ransomware. It hits all of the OT kind of systems. A lot of times you'll see in the media where a company goes, it didn't hit our operations. It only hit IT. And, and there's plenty of those cases we've been working and don't want to call the individual companies out, but it's completely false. Hmm. But they'll go, oh, well, that's a Windows system. And it's like, that's an engineering workstation that's controlling your manufacturing process. Well, it's IT because it's Windows. I'm like, no, the difference between IT and OT is not the operating system. Um, and so there's a lot of those cases where it hits OT pretty regularly. The second case, which we're starting to see more of, which, but it is the lesser, like the majority is ransomware actors hit an organization, don't know where they're going to hit, and then they just, you know, pop their malware where they can go and it impacts OT. The, the, the one that's starting to rise is, is the ransomware groups that have paid attention. They go, hmm, I don't know this OT stuff and I'm not an expert on it. 
But when I hit those weird systems on that side of the house, the company pays more and pays faster. Isn't that interesting? And so it's sort of that um, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy there where uh, when they can target OT directly, compromise firewall with the, you know, the one day later kind of vulnerability, get direct into the operations environment, when they can compromise those environments, they're seeing the feedback loop of more money. And so it shouldn't be surprising that the criminal groups are going to continue to target operations more. Mm. I think it, stepping back, you know, the picture that you're describing is not quite, you know, a situation of pervasive insecurity in critical infrastructure systems, but almost close. And I'm wondering just how, you know, just stepping back, how did we get to this point? Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to go all the way back, I would, I would say probably from my view, presidential directive 63 in 1998, <laughs> okay. uh, there was this discussion for the first time publicly really crisply on uh, cyber attacks can can impair critical infrastructure. And it was a presidential level like, hey, you own and operate critical infrastructure in the private sector and cyber attacks can take it down. That has national security impact. You got to do something about it. And at the time, all these companies looked at that and went, okay. Like they're not all these like profiteering, greedy companies of people that we, we live and work in the communities we serve. Like these asset owners want to take care of the community. And so they see statements like that. They see the warnings from the government. They go, oh, we need to do cybersecurity. And at the time in 1998, most of those operation systems were disconnected. They were more analog and manual. They were not digital and digital transformation, industry 4.0 or whatever you want to call it. And so uh, the limited IT security staffs that even existed in 98 were going out to their operations people and going, what do you need from us? And they were like, dude, like we don't. And you have super mm -hmm. limited resources. There weren't even like really CSOs around the community at the time. They're like, you have super limited resources. Go focus on the enterprise IT stuff. Don't worry about us. And it wasn't IT and OT hating each other. It was just a, hey, we don't need you. Please don't spend time thinking about us. Go go work on your stuff. We we respect what you're doing. And and nobody went back and really checked in on that. Or I don't say it's nobody. Some companies did. But there's a community we didn't go back and check on that. And so then we started getting digital connected services and, and original equipment manufacturer consolidation and more global integrators and remote operations and more digitization and going to that homogenous curve. And so you end up in the 2000s, especially nowadays, but you end up in the 2000s where we have much more highly connected OT infrastructure. You have much more digital, you have much more homogenous you know, work. But the security staffs always just went and built towards enterprise IT security. The standards, enterprise IT security. The vendor technologies, enterprise IT security. The, the way we talk about it, enterprise IT security. Like it was all went that direction. And now we're trying to fight to push it back a little bit to go, hey, the critical part of critical infrastructure is OT. The, the place you generate revenue as a business, your impact on society is OT. And 95% plus of the budget is getting spent on IT. Like that doesn't seem appropriate. Let's try to refigure this out. And, and you were seeing this play out in different industries. The industries that are going towards that digitization faster are the ones that we're seeing get hit more often. Hmm. And And by the way, you can't, Put that horse back in the barn. You don't want to be like, let's go back analog. That's not working. You can't run operations. You can't run society that way. But look at what happened to manufacturers. Manufacturers competing on a global stage really had to focus on profit margins. And the way to get there was automation and connectivity and consolidation. And so they're the ones, by and large, when you look at like the year interview data as an example, 
the vast majority of the ransomware cases we're seeing are on manufacturers. Mm. It's not because manufacturers are less secure than an electric utility. If you like read into the report and go into like the actual benchmarking of how we looked at the assessments across, you'll see the electric industry was actually much lesser than uh, performing than the manufacturing industry. But the manufacturing industry's attack surface blew up. Its connectivity blew up. Its access um, sort of blew up. And ransomware actors are taking advantage of that. So. To describe everything as like pervasive insecurity, I don't think is necessarily accurate, but I'm, I'm splitting some hairs here, to, to be fair. And I don't think it's like, oh, it's insecure by design. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's designed to operate, and that's what what's happening. The reality is a lot of our IT security practices were copy and pasted into OT. The OT standards weren't, what is the OT risk and what are we trying to reduce? It was, how do we do the IT stuff in OT? It wasn't, should we patch? It was, how do you patch? It wasn't, should you do endpoint protection? It was, how do you do endpoint protection? Because we just assumed that everything from IT was good. And and it's not accurate. And so like even at the SANS Institute, like Tim Conway and I sat down and just looked at all the different industrial security attacks that take place. Said, what are the security controls that were relevant in all of them? And it was just five. So we wrote a paper, five critical controls for ICS to say, these are the things that actually are OT specific that reduce risk. Mm. But if, as long as we're telling companies, oh my gosh, you have legacy infrastructure, you need to upgrade and patch, and that's your number one issue, when that is not at all what we're seeing in terms of what the threats are doing, you're going to get a mismatch, and you're going to be guiding people the wrong direction, and you're going to continue to have major incidents. Are there things in your mind that, that we could do, you know, whether that's technical or, or kind of policy levers, that would really shift the needle on critical infrastructure security? Um, yeah, and, and sometimes and we're starting to see it actually. So like one of the things that I've been big on was the whole, hey, there's a prevention bias. You you want to have SolarWinds like cases where SolarWinds was in an OT and we don't even know where you got to be able to have visibility. You got to be able to have insights in these environments. And and so I was sort of championing those things and and government agencies uh, through their own expertise too, but kind of took that guidance, did some pilots, looked around, I was like, oh crap, this is, yeah, absolutely. DOE was on the front of it with um, like their, their I think, decade-long roadmap um, for the cybersecurity of the electric sector. They were talking about that years ago. And, and so what we've seen now, just taking the electric sector as a subset, um, FERC even came out as their regulator and said, hey, we recognize actually a lot of this has been on prevention. Let's push out an order that we want to have internal network security monitoring. We want you to be able to see what all your assets are and who's connecting into it and how they're operating you know novel concept you should probably know what's happening in a substation uh, or a generation site and they worked with NERC, and NERC is putting forth a group going well, okay yeah let that makes sense let's tell you how we can do it and they're going to move that into regulation and you're going to see like the lights come on inside these networks as a result at those sites that are regulated which is not the majority of the electric sector but it is the big players uh, and so you'll see that but there's also an economic viability to that because those electric companies that are regulated have a mechanism to pass that capital back into the rate structure so that they are able to do that. So you, so this is going back to like my congressional hearing where congressmen were reasonably asking, why can't we do that in the water sector? Like, why, why can't we do the same thing? And it's like, well, because there's no such structure in the water sector to where your electric utilities have a FERC and a NERC and they have an ability to to pass rate back in or uh, pass capital back into the rate structure you really don't in water sectors in the water sector you've got you know the epa but you don't have a nerc like organization and the epa is surely not as resourced as FERC. um and fifty-five thousand plus water utilities they're like municipals they're city council led 
You want to tell me that they're going to be able to go to the city council and say, hey, I know that uh, you're worried about prices right now, but we want to add two cents to the utility bill because Russia and China exist. Like, it's not happening. Mm. So there's there's no economic driver to be able to facilitate that that outcome. So some industries are just going to get left behind right now as a result. Uh, and in like manufacturing oil and gas, they may not have the regulations, but there's a profit aspect to it. So they do sort of take that basis of it. Anyway, so long story short, in my view, it's an economics issue more than anything. It's like awareness and an economics issue. And where government is doing good on raising awareness, they're just not really taking on the economics issues. And you can't convince me that FEMA grants and and here's another grant going out to a water company that doesn't even have the accounting to even be able to take advantage of that grant is is the answer. So mm. um, we we are getting better as a community, but it's kind of that one percent of the community that's getting better. And when you're talking about national security, we need to we need to raise the tide a little higher. All right, Rob, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lovely conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.